0: All right, well, it's around 10.30, so I guess we can go ahead and uh, get started. Uh, this session, just to make sure you're in the in the right place, Old, er- Old Earth Origin Models and the Abolition of the Imago Dei. So I'm going to be talking about how uh, what I perceive as, as a uh, problematic connection between Old Earth Origin Models and the Imago Dei that's seemingly increasingly influential in the church. There are a number of organizations like uh, bio logos and reason to believe that are uh, trying to persuade people at the level of the church uh, congregation that uh, evolution or old earth approaches to origins are uh, the best way to try to reconcile science and scripture. And I see this as having damaging, devastating effect on the church uh, as that continues. So let me open us in prayer and then we'll we'll jump into what we have for today. Father, we're thankful for your kindness and your grace. Help us in this hour uh, just to be good stewards and students of your word. I pray that you would uh, just encourage the men who are here as they uh, think through the, the primacy of creation and how that impacts our walk with you, that this would be an encouraging time that your glory would be evident uh, as we look at the text of your word and I pray that you just give us uh, greater clarity and boldness as we seek to preach and teach the truth with conviction. I pray that Christ would be honored and that you'd be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Old earth origin models and the abolition of the Imago Dei. You may be in a church situation where you're increasingly getting questions about this. Uh, This seems to be having a lot of influence. I go to different conferences and I I see a lot of what I would call erosion toward old earth origin models happening in evangelicalism. Uh, And so this is an important topic that we need, I think, to be discussing and helping our church to think through. When we think about old earth creation evolution models, what I kind of want to do is just walk through what are some of the prominent approaches of old earth uh, origin models, uh, popular ones that we would see today in different contexts in which we find ourselves. Uh, Then I'm going to talk about what are some of the issues related to that, and along the way I'm also going to be developing what I see as the biblical account for the uh, image of God, meaning what does Scripture teach. Uh, And so if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis 1 first. That's where we're going to start uh, in just a moment, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. When I think about old earth models, uh, I think perhaps a helpful way of understanding what we see is to recognize that there are essentially two different approaches. So if, if you're going to kind of set aside Genesis 1 and 2, and interpret it uh, to mean that uh, creation isn't as straightforwardly presented in Genesis 1 and 2. You really have two options. One option is to take the days of the creation week as figurative. So, in other words, to invest them with a greater period of time than a solar 24-hour day. That's one approach. Or to see some kind of a a gap or period of time between uh, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Uh, The gap theory used to be probably a lot more popular than it is today, Uh, but there are still some that hold to some kind of a uh, period of time that happens in the course of those opening two verses, so we'll talk about that in a moment. All right, so first, probably the most popular approach to Genesis 1 within an old Earth model would be to take the days as figurative, and there are essentially four different possibilities within this. Uh, I could You know, teach a whole class just on these different interpretations. So, I'm giving a really quick overview of what these are. One that is popular in Presbyterian circles uh, and seems to have a, a fair amount of influence in the academy would be called the framework hypothesis view. If you uh, are interested in knowing more about that, Dr. McCabe, uh, my esteemed predecessor here, wrote a two-part series of articles on the framework hypothesis in our journal, and he deals in depth with what that is. Essentially, what they're arguing is that rather than uh, the days of Genesis 1 and 2 being sequential, literal days, that it's a dual-register literary framework. In in other words, what it's saying is it's basically uh, giving us panels or frames to understand what's going on, but it's not rooting or grounding those in actual days. It's rather a literarily crafted narrative uh, that doesn't actually comport to the solar days as we would understand them and and realize them. So the framework hypothesis is is fairly, uh, it's a sophisticated model and a sophisticated view. Uh, but at the same time, it's imposing a lot on Genesis 1. It's seeing it as literarily crafted rather than being a regular historical narrative as we would understand it. The second option would be theistic evolution. Now, this is sort of interesting because on the one hand, bio is... Uh, an organization begun by Francis Collins. You may know that name because of COVID issues over the past couple of years. Uh, He works at the National Institute of Health. Uh, But BioLogus as an organization, I would say, is making inroads in teaching theistic evolution and trying to get uh, everyday Christians to buy into it and to accept it. At the same time, they're getting a lot of pushback by certain segments of the academy. The uh, name Wayne Grudem, for instance, he's written over the past five years or so, two different books or edited volumes that are specifically against theistic evolution, uh, one of which is a very hefty volume, has a number of essays in it, and for the most part, they're helpful. The problem is Wayne Grudem and others won't go all the way and actually embrace publicly young earth creationism. He sort of straddles the middle of the road, so he he's against theistic evolution, but he won't really commit himself uh, to young earth creationism openly and publicly. All right, another option would be day age or day plus age model. So basically these would say that the days of creation are geological ages. So when uh, in the late 19th century, after Darwin's uh, theory of evolution came out, this was sort of a popular way of interpreting Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Even some of the professors at Princeton Seminary uh, took this model, basically the idea that each day corresponded to a geological age and this is grounded in uniformitarianism, meaning everything that we observe now has always been that way, and therefore uh, we can extrapolate from changes that we see over time in the present back to the distant future, and we can incorporate billions and billions of years, millions of years of geological change. So these would be day age or day plus age. The difference in the second one there is that Uh, They take one day as an actual creative day, but then they add geological ages in between those days. And then the fourth would be progressive creationism. So progressive creationism basically says God uses the normal means, what they would consider evolutionary means of, of life coming to be, and then periodically, he intervenes to supplement the process. So he intervenes to create something that wouldn't have otherwise been. Uh, and so he's intermittently uh, getting involved in the creation. Uh, and this tries to deal with one of the big problems uh, in evolutionary theory. Uh, Stephen Meyer, who teaches Uh, at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. He argues that one of the big problems for Darwin's theory is the so-called Cambrian explosion, where you have all of these new species that suddenly come into the fossil record. And he would argue, uh, Stephen Meyer, that genetics and things like the Cambrian explosion prove that Darwin's theory can't actually have been the way uh, that, that life came to be on planet Earth. So they're trying to sort of straddle uh, both evolutionary processes with also allowing God to create at, at different moments uh, species that wouldn't have otherwise existed. All right, the second would be creation interval models. So these see a period of time in the opening verses of Genesis. So let me just read these. I, I uh, had you open to Genesis one twenty six and 28, but if you look at the beginning of the chapter, It says, I'm reading from the ESV, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What creation interval models would essentially say is, uh, in verse 2, the earth becomes formless and void. That's to say that there's either an act of judgment or some period of time in which the original perfect universe Uh, reaches a state of chaos or judgment. So the gap theory, this was uh, expounded all the way back in the old Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, They would say Genesis 1-2 depicts a long period of chaos which occurred after God created an originally perfect universe. Now, one of the reasons this has fallen uh, out of favor is that from a syntactical standpoint or from a linguistic standpoint, uh, verse 2 cannot actually mean what the gap theory suggests. So it's a little bit of a technical discussion, but in the Hebrew narrative, one, two is an offline clause, which means it's not advancing the narrative in the next step. It's giving supplemental or background information. So it's not saying God created and then the earth became formless and void, because that doesn't really follow from how Hebrew narrative works. This is rather saying this is what the the state of creation was when God initially created the heavens and the earth. So 1-1 I take to be his first act. Uh, But another interpretation, the final one is pre-creation chaos theory, which says 1-1 is a summary. Now, this is becoming more popular in academic circles. Basically, the argument here is 1-1 just is a heading that describes all of chapters 1 and 2, if you will, uh, rather than seeing it as God's first act. And therefore, they they sort of say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but this is sort of just uh, a statement that isn't the origin of everything, but it's just a heading or a summary. And then they would see 1-3 to 2-3, uh, Etc. As describing what happens after, after some kind of chaos. So they would say, one one is a heading. One two describes the earth in its initial state. There was some kind of chaos or judgment, and that's when God began to create. And so, uh, beginning in verse three is when we have actual creation starting to be. All right. So to zoom out just for a moment. So the two basic approaches to trying to align creation and, and evolution or old earth models within different biblical interpretations are either to take the days as figurative or to see some kind of long period of time crammed in the opening verses of Genesis. So these are the two ways typically interpreters will get there. Um, if there's a lot of reasons for taking the days in Genesis one and two as literal, uh, we did a podcast. I I did a podcast with Dr. Uh, professor Edwards a few uh, months ago where we talked about the days of Genesis and, you know, I'm not necessarily getting into that, but there are a lot of good reasons for seeing the days as actual literal days, but old earth origin models will typically take one of these two approaches. Now, if you have questions, we'll, we'll, I'll leave time at the end. So, uh, be, be ready for that uh, when we get further along here. All right, what are some of the problems that old earth creation or evolution models have with respect to the creation account? Okay, one obviously is that they're taking the days as figurative or seeing something in the text between verses one and two that's simply not there. So we could simply stop there and say they've got it wrong for that very reason. They're not taking the days as actual literal days. But I would argue that there are even more Uh, difficult theological problems and issues with this way of thinking, and uh, these are a few that I I could add to this list, but a few serious uh, issues and problems. Number one, death must precede the human fall into sin, as described in Genesis 3, and becomes intrinsic to the created world. In other words, what these theories are essentially having to do is say, death is organic and intrinsic. It's part of the created order, and so it's not a result of sin. They're severing that necessary biblical connection between sin and death that's uh, present in the New Testament that's clearly articulated by Paul in Romans 5 and other places, and so they have to have death in some fashion prior to the entrance of sin as Genesis 3 records it. This probably is, I I think, the single biggest issue. They've they've undone this connection between sin and death that the Bible makes clear. A second problem, though, that I think probably doesn't get as much attention but is also important, and that is this, that some intervening process supplants God's direct and immediate creation of all species, including humans. In other words, what they have to see or they generally uh, posit is that some process Whether it's an evolutionary process, geological change has supplemented or supplanted God's direct and immediate creation. What this tends to do, I think, is sever the connection between creator and creatures. It it inflates this process with quasi-metaphysical qualities, if that makes sense. In other words, the evolutionary process itself becomes sort of like uh, a conscious animate, intentional, purposive process whereby things are adapting and evolving over time. And that tends to uh, distance God from the direct and immediate creation of the species as is recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. All right, a third problem is the human race does not possess complete unity nor carry a clear distinction from the animal world. This has related implications for the image of God, for original sin, and for Redemption. In other words, if you take an old earth model, you have to sort of do what John Walton does with Genesis, and that is to say, of all the humanoid kind of creatures that were existing in the world at that time, God picked a pair— And he designated them as Adam and Eve. And from them, uh, all that we read in Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3 follows. In other words, the uh, imputation of sin, John Walton uses the analogy of radiation poisoning. It's not a biological descent. It's not an imputation to Adam's posterity, more like uh, Chernobyl. It's, It's radiation poisoning that affects the created order and that God has just picked one human pair to become the parents of the human race. Well, that has all kinds of profound implications for uh, our bearing the image of God, for the fact that original sin is imputed to us and that Christ himself becomes a man to redeem humans. All of this is essentially jeopardized if uh, the human pair, Adam and Eve, aren't directly created by God with an organic connection and unity of the human race. And then I would argue that eschatology, in fact, must be modified in view of the biblical correlation between original creation and new creation. In other words, if death is intrinsic to the created order, and if the new creation is modeled on the original creation, as is the case consistently in Scripture, then essentially uh, it has wide-ranging implications, I would argue, for how Uh, eschatology is worked out, how we understand the new creation when God recreates, uh, how we can be sinless in our resurrected body. All of these things become factors now, and this has severe consequences, I would argue, for the doxological purpose of creation. If creation is glorifying God, and that's its purpose, evolution, I think, tends to undermine that because death becomes intrinsic to the created order, Genesis 1.31 is turned on its head when God looks at creation and sees that it's very good. Uh, That's sort of at odds with the idea that death and destruction has been intrinsic since the very beginning of creation. Uh, So it's distorting the doxological purpose and it impinges adversely on nearly every doctrine of scripture. I think it has implications for theology proper, for homardiology, the doctrine of sin, for anthropology, the doctrine of mankind, humans. Uh, These are adversely affected if we see Genesis 1 and 2 under the old earth model. I used to have a colleague that says it's sort of like a rocket ship. If you get the trajectory just a bit wrong at the beginning, by the end, you've gone very wide of the mark. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is a foundation for us, especially when we think about things related to the image of God. All right. So having said that, I want to kind of talk through what are some of the issues related to the image of God as we think about The image of God, what do we understand about it? I'm going to present a case for what I see as sort of a complex uh, related to the image of God that incorporates different features that have historically been stressed or emphasized in the image. All right, so let me try to explain this. So when you think about the Imago Dei throughout church history, there have mainly been three interpretations as to what it is. One is that it is relational. This is uh, a view that's growing in popularity. There was an article uh, recently by John Hammett, who I mentioned there, uh, arguing for this view. And he says it's it's gaining a near consensus. So the relational view says the image means mankind has a relational capacity with God. Man is created for fellowship with God. Now, on the face of it, we wouldn't disagree necessarily with that. We understand that we are relational beings, right? The COVID isolation was very adverse to people across the board uh, because we are intended to be relational beings. But is that the same as saying that this is essentially what the image is, or does it incorporate more than just the relational aspect? So this is one view, it's gaining in popularity. A second view, now I would say most uh, biblical scholars who are Old Testament scholars and work a lot in the text of Genesis 1 have tended to gravitate toward this view. This is the representative or functional view. And what this view says is that mankind has a functional role as God's vice regent and that this pertains to what man does. That is, man is created to exercise dominion over creation as God does over the cosmos. And if you look at Genesis 1 26 to 28, which we'll do in a moment, Uh, you can get that idea that this is essentially what mankind is created to do. We're to represent God and to function in that capacity. One of the issues though, one of the questions that's raised often is what about someone who is incapacitated in some way from fulfilling a functional role in terms of representing God? In other words, does that uh, obliterate the image? Would we say someone who can't uh, function in a, what we might consider, uh, according to normal human ways, lesser a lesser image bearer than someone who can function? So the functional has some issues, I think, with uh, correlating everything related to it. Uh, so the third view, this is probably the most popular in systematic theology, and it's been a popular view in church, church history. This is the resemblance, resemblance or substantive view. What this says is that the image entails mankind's essence or being and pertains to what man is. So this relates to, if we could use the word ontology, this is man's essence, his being. Man is created to be a self-conscious, free, moral, spiritual, rational being as God is. So these have been the three main lines Probably if you pick up a systematic theology, it's going, like Grudem or Erickson, it's going to talk about the resemblance or substantive view. Sometimes this is called the structural view. And so these are the main lines of discussion. Advocates of the representational or functional view, such as uh, J. Richard Middleton and Mark Cortez, uh, as well as the relational view, John Hammett, have claimed scholarly consensus. So if you read Middleton, he'll say everybody, uh, nearly everyone is, is taking the representative view. If you read Hammett, he'll say nearly everyone is taking the relational view, and so they're tending to see those as gaining consensus, and yet the substantive view has had the most support among systematic theologians and probably in church history. So as you think about this, you may in your mind think, I sort of already gravitate toward one view or the other of these three. What I'm going to suggest is they actually each have uh, things that are true about the image and that can be rooted in the text. And so I'm going to argue for a complex uh, of these three views. All right. Now, when we think about the image of God, what's interesting, I think, on, on one hand, is the fact that although this is such a vital, important topic, there are relatively few passages that actually talk about the image. So when we think about the image of God, there are only a handful of uh, texts that actually specifically mention it. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seven, I included, but it, I'm not including that as part of the discussion because that seems uh, to be perhaps related to gender roles in the church. And so I'm I'm focusing more on the Genesis text and then James 3.9. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Genesis 1. I want to focus here on verses 26 to 28 and then read these other texts in Genesis and then we'll talk about what I think is going on here. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is really the ground zero for Imago Dei discussions. This is the clear text where God is first saying, let us make man in our image and their are all kinds of uh, things we could discuss here about this text, but we want to focus specifically on God's intentional purpose for mankind. So he's saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The words image here and likeness are in parallel. And so uh, they seem to both pertain to what God is creating in mankind. And then in an immediate context, of course, uh, there is a function or a representation that is to take place. They are to have dominion over the animal world, uh, and then in verse 28, they are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. That's the Hebrew word rada, which means to rule. So they're to rule over creation in some sense. Now, if we fast forward a few chapters, and I want to uh, just read these different verses in Genesis, if you look to chapter five, in chapter five, there's an interesting connection, if you will, on the image, because the image uh, from Genesis one, as God creates Adam, uh, in his image, now seems to pertain also to Adam's posterity, that is to Seth and those that follow. Look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. On the day when, or when, God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, or Adam, when they were created. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so, uh, This is a reference back to chapter one, but also now uh, puts it in the context of Adam is having his own son who is in his likeness and in his image. So this seems to connect the image also to uh, biological descent from parents to children. And then one other text in uh, Genesis uh, that talks about this is in chapter nine. If you look at Genesis 9, 6, this is after the flood. I'll begin in verse five, actually, uh, God is speaking here to Noah. He says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. All right, so again, this is tying the, uh, the charge for capital punishment within the context of Uh, social organization and government back to the image, tying it to the sanctity of human life. Now, James 3.9 in the New Testament uh, is a reference where James specifically says, with our mouths, we bless God and we curse our fellow humans, our fellow mankind who are made in the image of God. And so that's a reference saying we shouldn't be treating people around us with disdain and disregard because they are image bearers. They're made in the image of God. All right, so as we correlate these different texts, some things I, I just want to think, that, think about that are intrinsic and important, I think, to what's going on here. Genesis one twenty-seven and 5.2 both mention male and female as constitutive of the image. I think this is really important to understand that when God creates humanity, male and female are intrinsically part of what that means, what that image-bearing means pertains to. Uh, there are a lot of, I think, profound implications for that as you think through that in terms of your ministry and as you're uh, dealing with the issues that we face in our society today, understanding that God intrinsically created them, male and female, complementary as image bearers. That's an important component of it. Now, Genesis 1, 28, and 5, 2 also associate the image with divine blessing. So that's to say uh, when God makes man in his image, he blesses him and gives him a charge as to what he's supposed to do. So image bearing connects to divine blessing. There's an important connection there. Uh, Genesis 5, 1 and 2 speak of the day when God created humanity as the foundation of their image bearing. So again, creation and specifically the day of their creation is the foundation of image bearing. If we say that image uh, the image of God in humanity is the result of a long evolutionary process. This goes against another clear text of Scripture here in Genesis 5. In Genesis 5, two, God, the Creator, names humanity as an expression of His sovereignty. So the fact that He names humankind... Uh, shows that he is sovereign over mankind's identity and character. So he has crafted us in such a way uh, that he's put his stamp or his image upon us. Uh, one of the books of the Bible I deal a lot with is the book of Ecclesiastes as I'm working through it. And I think one reason that Ecclesiastes is so resonant with our cultural moment is one of his big uh, pushes is to show that we are finite creatures. We're constantly trying to transcend our limitations to think that somehow we can outlive death, we can outlive all these different things. And what we really need to understand as humans is that God has given us a portion or a gift to enjoy, but that includes the fact of limitations. We're limited as humans, we are not transcendent. When we're trying to transcend our gender or whatever it might be, we're actually violating God's created order. And so that's uh, a huge issue and a problem. All right, Genesis 9, 6 here relates the image to the sanctity of human life. So the fact that uh, bloodshed is forbidden because people bear the image of God relates to the fact that God has, has commanded image bearers to view human life as sacred, as a gift from him. And then James 3.9 relates this to our obligation to show dignity to others. We're not to curse others, to treat them poorly. Uh, We're to recognize that uh, they are the image bearers of God and to treat them with dignity. So I would say both Genesis 9.6 and James 3.9 pertain to the sanctity and dignity of human life because we bear the image. In addition, these verses imply that after Genesis 1, humans still possess the image following the fall and pass the image onto their posterity. Genesis 5.3, uh, I would argue, maintains that, that the image is still present. Uh, but I would agree with those who would argue it is, it is marred, but not effaced. Uh, it is still present in humans even after the fall. All right, so those are some texts that set the foundation for it. One of the things I think that's significant to talk about is how Christ relates to the image of God. There are four biblical texts that specifically talk about the image of God in Christ. So these would be John 14:9, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Colossians 1:15, and Hebrews 1.3. So these express uh, the idea that Christ is the image of God. So just a quick overview of what these texts say. John 14.9 says that uh, Jesus is the visual representation of the Father. He says there that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in some fashion, Jesus is the image of God. He uh, brings to humanity a visual representation of the Father. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Jesus is the image of God, and this relates to his glory. He has uh, full, radiant glory, and that's because he is the image of God. Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.3, they both relate Christ as God's image to his deity, the deity of Christ. He's the exact expression of God's being. And so in bearing the image, he is an exact likeness of the Father. Two other texts that I don't have in bold but are also important here would be Ephesians 4, 20 to 24, and Colossians 3, 9 to 11. These texts suggest that as believers become more like Christ, they reflect the image to a greater degree. In other words, the, the hint here, the indication is that as we are more like Christ, we more fully represent or possess that image because Christ is the perfect image of the Father. Now, John Hammett infers from these texts, and he qualifies this carefully, and I would say in the literature, this distinction isn't always made, but uh, I, I think this seems to be a valid point. He says, I think it's wise to observe that Christ is the image. Humans are made in or according to the image. As God incarnate, Christ is the image of God in a way that mere humans can never be. So, Jesus is the ideal image we are uh, seeking to be more and more like him and to reflect that image as we become more like him. Now, this has implications, I think, as well for how we understand the image and how we see the image reflected in humans, that we are more uh, in line with the image or better representing it when we become more like Christ. All right, what I want to do now is uh, drill down on two texts, beginning in 126 and 28, and develop from these what I think are, are parameters, if you will, for the image of God in humanity. I'm going to argue that Genesis 1:26 to 28 presents mankind in a royal fashion. That is to say, we're representing God on earth as vice regents who are to have dominion, and I want to try to draw out some implications in that. And then in chapter 2, I would argue that two fifteen to 17, which is a supplementary account of God's specific creation of Adam, has what I would consider priestly uh, overtones, which relates to what I call the vertical dimension of the Imago Dei. That is, I, I see a vertical and a horizontal dimension, meaning vertically we relate to God and we serve him. And then horizontally, we represent God. We uh, exercise dominion in a way that is like as he rules over the universe. All right, a lot of biblical scholars have noticed that when you come to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, there's a lot going on in the text that is distinct from the previous days. So the days uh, leading up to day six, when man is created, uh, there's a noticeable change here. So one is the change in style, God for the first time Uh, addresses himself in the plural, let us make man in our image. So that's distinct from what God has said up to that point in the passage. There's a different pattern used. Day six has an extensive explanation. So there's a lot going on describing what day six is. Day six is the final day of creation, meaning it's the final day in which God is creating things. And so it seems to be the focal point of the creative process. I would say day seven is the consummation of the creation week. That's where God takes his rest and uh, he is fully king over his creation. But day six is sort of the climax of the creation week. There's a longer report here. Day six has the longest report of any day. It's the only day to use the definite article. It's the sixth day. And it specifically talks about royal rule. That is to say, the words rule and subdue are unique to mankind. No other created entities are told to rule and subdue. Now, the be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth language is used of the birds and the fish, uh, but, it's, but not ruling and subduing. Those are unique to humans. You could look at this in different ways. For one, another thing is day six has about a a double uh, pattern from the other days. So the other days have an announcement command, description, evaluation, blessing, and then a temporal framework, evening and morning. Day six uh, amplifies that to a great extent. So it has 12 different features that mark day six as unique and different. Another way of thinking about this would be the number of days used to describe day six vis-a-vis the the other days of creation. So something unique is going on here. This, of course, revolves around the fact that uh, God is creating mankind in his image. All right, now, some scholars have pointed to, uh, particularly the ones that prefer the representational view, have focused on the fact that there are a lot of ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation or other things that relate to the image of God And they would argue, many biblical scholars, J. Richard Middleton, Peter Gentry, others, that these provide a model for us of what image and likeness mean. I'm just alluding to these to show you what's out there because if you do much reading, you'll probably come across uh, different uh, arguments like this. One is there's an Aramaic inscription uh, from the 10th to 9th centuries BC that uses these terms, image and likeness. And so what the representative view essentially argues is The king conquered this territory and he set up his statue at one of the major crossroads and he wrote an inscription on this uh, statue and essentially what the statue was doing or functioning as it was to be a representative of the king, both in his relation to God and in his relation to the surrounding people. In other words, as the people passed by the statue, they were to remember that that king was ruling over this realm, over these people. And the statue was also to continually offer prayers on behalf of the king. And so you see the inscription here. It's the image which he has set up before Hadad. It's the likeness of the king uh, and of Azran. So the image... Related to the fact that the statue was perpetually offering prayers of thanksgiving to Hadad for his blessing, and the term likeness was a warning that the king was in charge. He had authority over this realm. Now, I'm reluctant to uh, all the time necessarily take ancient or eastern materials and impose them on Genesis. I think there's a danger in doing that. But at the same time, this does provide sort of a cultural backdrop for how these uh, discussions and understandings likely would have been in the ancient world. And so I think it does help us a little bit to understand uh, how ancient people might have thought about uh, image and likeness language. Another example would be uh, an Egyptian inscription that also uses the term likeness and form. And this is from Egyptian Pharaoh Ramses II. He describes himself as the image of the gods. He has the form of the gods. Now, again, there's both, I think, good things, but also cautions that we have to take. One of the arguments that the representative view often makes is that these inscriptions prove that image and likeness language is royal, nature, That is to say that it's intrinsically royal. When we talk about image and likeness, we're thinking about royal concepts. That may be the case, but I think we have to derive that from the text of Scripture, not necessarily just because ancient uh, Near Eastern contexts suggested that. All right, a couple of the things I just want to mention then I'm going to try to explain what I see going on in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Some theologians have maintained a rigid distinction between image and likeness, but because of the parallelism, I think uh, I'm cautioned against doing that. In other words, uh, I I don't see a huge distinction between the word image and the word likeness in the text. They seem to be describing a similar phenomenon, if you will, uh, because they're parallel. Likewise, the prepositions in and according to, I don't think we should overly distinguish them. In other words, God says in 126, uh, he's going to make man in his image and according to or after our likeness. I would see these as sort of parallel concepts, so I don't think we should too finely parse what the difference would be between those two ideas. Now, Roland McCune, who taught here for many years at the seminary, was my, uh, one of my systematic theologian uh, professors. He argued that we should not divorce man's physical body From image discussions. And I think this is often underemphasized in the literature about image issues, but he argues for three reasons why the physical body should be thought of or incorporated into our understanding of image. He says uh, God proposes to make man in his image and then immediately fashions him as a physical being which suggests the body should not be divorced from the image, that we are embodied image bearers. And so that's part of uh, what we should think about as uh, image bearers. Number two, mankind is a unity of body and spirit. So we shouldn't try to uh, divide man between body and spirit, but think more holistically about the image. So this would include the fact that we are embodied humans as image bearers. And then he points to Genesis 5, 1 and 3. Adam is made in the image of God is Correlated then to Seth, who is made in the image of Adam, which suggests that the body Adam receives from God and the body Seth receives from Adam should be incorporated into our understandings of the image. So they, uh, he would argue that the, the physicality should be understood as part of what it means to be the in the image. Now, some, like Mormons, take that too far and, and they tend to uh, divorce it from the ontological qualities, if you will. But nonetheless, I think it should be part of the discussion. All right. So, what I want to argue for is when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, these two texts, I think, focus on the image in ways that uh, in the context of the ancient world and in the context of Scripture would have explained image bearing in certain ways. So, I would argue that there's a horizontal. Uh, dimension, that emphasizes the representative functional properties, that is, mankind is self-conscious, self-determinant, creative, intelligent. All these factors are part of what it means to represent God as his created beings. One of the discussions on the image of God, one of the profound questions is often asked is, how does bearing the image in humanity make them different from the animals, right? So we're created from the dust as the animals are, and yet we have a function over them that that is of a higher order. And so one of the questions is, what distinction do we draw in that sense? I think this emphasizes this vice regency or this kingly role, uh, and that's in Genesis 1, to 28. And then I would argue that there's a vertical dimension, that is our relational or resemblance properties. This would be fellowship, personality, speaking language, worship, and morality, and that this connects specifically to the priestly role expounded in Genesis 2. All right, so maybe you've heard this before, or this may be new, but basically what I'm arguing is uh, Genesis 1 focuses on royal language and terminology and, and shows that the image has representational features. Genesis 2, 15 to 17 focuses on relational and resemblance factors and shows that we have a vertical connection to God, and we represent Him, or we, I should say, serve Him as a priest would, and so I'm going to argue for um, things related to that. All right, so the font here is a little smaller, but let me just kind of explain what's going on. If we look at Genesis 1, and 28, I would suggest that within these verses is a concentration of royal or ruling terminology, and I have, I think, Uh, four or five points here that relate to that. The first is humanity is to rule over the created order. Specifically in 126 and 28, it's over the animal world. That is the realms of fish, birds, and land animals. This term, Radah, to rule, is associated elsewhere with the royal dominion of kings and of the coming Messiah. Numbers 24 prophesies about the coming Messiah, uses the term Radah, he will rule, Uh, Psalms 72 and 110 talk about the future Messiah also as ruling and reigning that his dominion will be from one end of the earth to the other. Uh, 1 Kings 4.24 associates that specifically with Solomon's dominion over his realm. All right, second, mankind is to fill the earth. Both 128 and 9.1 say that. I would argue that fullness within a sphere elsewhere pertains to the concepts of overtaking and exerting power or authority. You find this phrase used a lot in the Old Testament when the earth is full of a particular nation. For instance, the Israelites uh, in Exodus 1-7, the Aramaeans in 1 Kings 20, it has this idea of overtaking a region and exerting authority or power. Before the flood and in the days of Jeremiah, human wickedness had filled the earth And Habakkuk and the Psalms talk about a day when God's glory and character, the knowledge of God, will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So filling language. Number three, God blesses humanity in their role, Genesis 128. And I would argue that while this is not exclusive to kingship, divine blessing is tied in several passages to the effective rule and legacy of the king, especially in the light of the Davidic covenant. So we see this 2 Samuel 7, David talks about the blessing that follows God's choice of his household for uh, the Davidic covenant. Uh, And then we see this uh, in other passages related to David. Uh, Psalm 72 uh, uses this word repeatedly. Uh, I would take Psalm 72 as David's final prayer dedicating Solomon as his successor to a successful reign. And he uses the term blessing uh, several times in those closing verses of Psalm 72. And then number four, humanity is to subdue the earth. This is a, a fairly forceful term. It means to subjugate or forcibly subdue an often unruly subject, someone who resists authority. Uh, The word is used elsewhere to describe the Israelites' conquest of Canaan and their enemies, as well as the royal power exerted by David and other kings when they subdued their enemies. So they were bringing the, David specifically was bringing the surrounding peoples into subjection, and that was uh, using the word kavash in that context. All right, so I would argue that 126 to 28 has a concentration of royal terminology, now, most biblical scholars sort of uh, just assume this at this point. There are a few holdouts perhaps that would resist this idea, but most biblical scholars would would see 126 to 28 as having royal implications where there's still some discussion is about this priestly role. I remember seeing a few years back a, a discussion forum in which people were pushing back against this idea that Adam has any priestly uh, tones or, or that the creation account in- includes anything along those lines. I haven't read this text yet, but let's look in chapter two. And I think 2.15 to 17, although it doesn't use image language, uh, is important for our discussion. It says here, 2.15, the, the Lord God took the man, or Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so what's going on here? I would argue that the language here would, would reflect later connections to the priestly ministry of the tribe of Levi and the Levites. Let me uh, argue for a few things along these lines. First, God takes Adam, it's the Hebrew word Lakhak, takes him and literally rests him or situates him in the garden. Similarly, God, that this is a fairly uncommon expression for God to take someone. He takes Abraham, he takes a few other people, David, uh, but specifically it's, it's fairly uncommon, but we do find it later in the Pentateuch. God takes the Levites in the place of the firstborn sons of Israel and he commissions them to be his unique representative. So God is taking them from the tribes and he's uh, electing them, choosing them to be his intermediaries between God and the people. Moreover, the priests minister in God's presence, which is elsewhere associated with rest, using the same term, nuach. It's related to the term Noah, who's supposed to provide rest. So uh, when God is present, there is rest involved. And these two terms are related to Adam's uh, being taken and placed in the garden. Number two, Adam is to work, avad, which means to serve or to work the garden, and he's to keep it, shamar, or guard it. So he's to serve and to protect, uh, which is a common motto even in police uh, forces today, to serve and protect. So these are his two fundamental charges. What's interesting is elsewhere, these two terms occur in this pattern only and the priestly law governing Levitical duties within the tabernacle. So Numbers 3, 7, and 8, 8, and 18 uh, charge the priests that they are to work and to guard or to keep. And so those were terms that came to be associated with priestly duties and ministries. Number three, Adam receives the first divine command. This is the Hebrew term tzavah, uh, also the noun form mitzvah. Uh, The term appears most often in the Pentateuch with respect to priestly regulations and duties surrounding the construction and function of the tabernacle and the cult. So 37 times in Exodus 25, 40, you have this common refrain that Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, just as the Lord commanded him. So this is repeated a lot uh, in that. In those chapters. And then 16 times when the priests are ordained, Aaron and his sons, uh, this term uh, tzavah, command, is used repeatedly in that context as well. And then number four, Adam is forbidden to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, These two terms elsewhere are associated with the priest's role. They are to discern good and evil on behalf of the people. So Leviticus 27 uses this phrase four different times to show how the priests are to help the people understand what is good. And what is evil. And then uh, they're also to teach the Torah to the people, uh, which relates, I think, both to the fact that Adam receives a command that he's supposed to pass on. uh, So the priests are also supposed to teach Torah so that the people can discern right from wrong and good from evil. So we might say it this way mankind, humanity is created as the pinnacle of creation, a priest king that is related to God and also related to creation. He relates to God and to other humans and the rest of the created order. Uh, Herm, Herman Bavink said that, you know, we were created from the dust as the animals were so that we could relate to them and yet still of a higher order rule over them. So we're, we're made of the same stuff, but we're to rule over the animal world. The image of God is, I think best, best understood as a complex of relational functional and substantive capacities that is to say, man is a personal being, he has intellect, will, affections, he's a spiritual being primed for fellowship and worship, and he's a moral being. He has conscience, self-determination, uh, and so all of these factors, I think, would converge in the image, uh, and that the image is marred but not effaced by the fall. So it's still there, uh, but it's been tarnished because of the fall into sin. All right, so... Um, I developed this a little bit more, and because of uh, time, I'm not going to be able to get into all this. I wrote a journal article in 2020 in the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal. It's entitled uh, Biblical Creation and Presuppositional Apologetics, and I get into a lot of the arguments here. Uh, So I'll just mention a a few of these, and uh, I want to leave a few minutes for questions. I would argue that there are several profound theological issues with old earth models. One is that they fail to account for the diversity of life forms and their necessary connection to the creator. So basically what they have to argue is Uh, All organisms descend from a single organism, which is hugely problematic for the diversity of life that we see today. Stephen Meyer and a few others have argued that if you really understand genetics, since the breakthrough in understanding the genetic code, that it's simply impossible that organisms could have even evolved as it is alleged in darwin's theory because there's it doesn't matter how much time you have there's not enough time to reach the complexity of the genetic code that creatures have it's simply not possible and stephen meyer has made a great case for that in a book called darwin's doubt where he talks about it's just mathematically impossible all right second old earth models fail to divest from materialism and an incipient form of materialistic dualism what do i mean by this Old earth models essentially have to have life originating from the material order. And this is a huge problem, the so-called mind-body issue. How do you get a conscious, sentient being from material that is inanimate? It's, it's a huge issue. Uh, they try to skirt this through various uh, means, whether it's progressive creation or other things, but it's a huge problem. And so the image of God impinges directly upon this because we would argue that uh, we are uh, created both as spiritual beings and as material beings, and that's part of God's design as his image bearer. Uh, One of the big issues theologically is that it tends to nullify the unity of the human race. Uh, So it it tends to uh, sever humans from their necessary biological connection to one another. John Murray talks about this. He, He says something to the effect of whatever doctrine of imputation you come to, it has to be connected to the fact that we're biologically descended from the first Pair of humans. That is to say, there's a necessary biological connection to our ancestor. There's a unity of the human race. If the human race is not unified, how is redemption for all people possible through the coming of Christ as a man? In other words, it sort of severs this necessary connection within the human race. And then it abolishes the creator creature distinction because it tends to assign what I would call unwarranted metaphysical properties to the evolutionary process. Uh, Richard Dawkins is infamous for this. In my mind, he talks about uh, blind pitiless chance, uh, complete cosmic indifference. He talks, he uses these terms to talk about uh, DNA and genetics, and then he says, and we dance to its music. So he's, he's trying to have it both ways, that there's intentionality. So the fact that we dance to its music suggests that There's a design, right? Somebody's created a a a musical score to follow along with this blind, pitiless indifference. So it 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 really doesn't work. He's trying to connect to have it both ways, to both see there to be uh, a process that brought us to be, but also to have metaphysical properties within that evolutionary process that embeds design and intention somehow into the process. So I would conclude uh, in saying this. The straightforward reading of Genesis 1 and 2, coupled with a young earth creationism, best accounts for how humanity represents God, the creator king, as his representative, rightly relates to him as his image bearer living in fellowship with him, and resembles finitely his personhood and capacities for intellect, will, and emotion or affections. Old earth origin models severely undermine the clear authority of scripture in this regard and diminish the direct connection between God the creator And humans who bear his image. So I would argue that uh, unless we take Genesis 1 and 2 as it straightforwardly is presented to us, we're tending to undermine or diminish the necessary connection between us and God as image bearers.